Welcome to PWGC's Environmental Echo Podcast. Today is the second part of a three-part series on water quality. In this episode, we'll be discussing stormwater management, and among the items we'll be discussing will be pollutants, um, stormwater management design, and treatment. Before we go any further, if you have any questions about this podcast, please reach out to pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. Today, as always, joining me is PWGC President Paul Boyce and also PWGC Vice President Brian Grogan. Hey, good morning, Nick. Morning, Nick. In the following podcast, we will discuss the first of two issues that impact surface water quality, which is stormwater management. Each year, billions of gallons of, can I say, is it billions of gallons of water? It's literally hundreds of billions of gallons each year. And we've previously discussed, you know, how much of it that actually makes it into the ground and the remainder, what happens to that? That's the stormwater runoff. You know, where does it go? How do we treat it? How do we handle it? How do we store it? You know, um, management of it, it's, it's, it's a critical, uh, as we said, precious resource. Um, you can start with, say, like the MS4. Those, those grates those, you run over with your bike you or your car that you, you, you absolutely hate. Well, that's where you, we, the first place that we capture, you know, some of this r- runoff as opposed to like a roof or down a gutter. But if you take that surface runoff, you know, where does it go from there? Right. People, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. A lot of people don't think about it, you know. What happens to it? Um, for starters, once it goes into that collection system, you know, that, that point of entry, like a, a drain or a catch basin, you know, it could then go to numerous places. It could go to a dry well. It could go to a recharge basin. It could go directly to a surface water body. All these have different impacts as to, you know, where it lands and how it's handled. Can you give an example of how stormwater is or can negatively impact the region's surface waters? And in the work that we do, you know, there's issues related to to sediment and contaminants and what have you. Uh, Can you give an example of how um, stormwater hitting a road and then running towards a water body? Sure. What what are the what are the uh, results? Yeah, yeah, and let's not say it's the stormwater per se that's having the negative impact, but let's go back to what I just said. You know, what is it picking up? Mm -hmm. You know, what's in the road? You know, you, you could talk about stuff that leaked out of a car, a gasoline spill. Uh, people throw their cigarette butts out, you know, out the window. That gets picked up in the stormwater often. You mentioned sediments. Uh, this time of year, we're, we're in March, it's still, you know, cold. They recently were sanding and salting the roads when we had those, uh, you know, February snowstorms. That stuff ends up on the roads. It ends up getting in, into the stormwater and ultimately into these systems. Um, other things that are, are issues could be like uh, pet waste. It's a big thing, you know. It, people are told to pick up after the pets, you know. What happens? It's bacteria, right. you know. Rainfall hits that, it's in the street, ends up going into a drain, goes out to the bay. You know, all these wonderful issues that we have to deal with. Um, There's other stuff, you know, that can be picked up as pollutants. Um, Fertilizers, runoff, you know, we're we're dealing with this quite a bit. Um, You may have homeowners, you know, could over-fertilize, and you get stuff that rushes off and goes down your driveway out into the street. Or you could have farm fields that, uh, you know, have to fertilize crops. We've seen runoff come off of these things and end up out in the roadway as well. Um, floatables, another thing that stormwater can pick up that we've seen end up in there. Uh, back before they banned like styrofoam coffee cups, you know, you know how wonderful those things tend to float. Soda bottles, right. you know, all that stuff ends up in our systems. Uh, I mentioned the oils and greases, the hydraulic fluids, anything that can leak off a car on a parking lot or in the road or in a driveway that can end up getting, you know, mixing up with the stormwater and end up going out to the, uh, entering the system through a, an inlet, you know. Um, other things are soaps and surfactants, you know, uh, 
take it. I, I love to wash my car in the summer. Right? Let's not say I love it, but I do it. Right. And uh, you know, I, I often I, I watch the stuff. I've got a sloped driveway, and I just watch the soap suds go down the go down my driveway, out into the street, and then up in front of my neighbor's house. Right. And then he walks his dogs through it. But uh, ultimately, that stuff's flowing to a storm drain. Right. Um, where's that go? Where I live, it goes out to the bay eventually. Right. You know. So th- these are things that people have to be cognizant of. Of you know what's happening once the stuff gets out into the environment. Um, and what can we do about it? You know, as I've said previously, prevention. Does that mean I'm going to stop washing my car or my truck? You know, um, that's that's tough. You know, or go to a dedicated car wash facility where they have places where they have, they capture every you know not every drop but everything that's coming off the machine when they're washing your car, right. and they're responsible for treating it. Um, you know, but that's that's really how stormwater can have a real negative impact on surface water bodies, especially as they this stuff flows directly to like a, a bay, um, a harbor, a stream, a creek, uh, a pond, you know, places we have to drain to, even recharge basins. You know, this stuff will ultimately make its way to the groundwater too, especially if we're picking up a lot of, um, you know, pollutants. Like it could be, uh, as I mentioned, say you had a gasoline spill, you know, or your car's leaking oil. I've seen plenty of parking lots after it rains. You'll see that um, rainbow kind of sheen. Right. You know, what do you think that's from? <laughs> right. You know, it could be hydraulic fluids. It could be it could be oil. It could be you can get gasoline to produce something petroleum, something based. like that. And you know, obviously, you don't want this stuff getting out into the environment. It's it's harmful. So, to some degree, how was stormwater managed in the past? It seems simply from observation that uh, it was put into those drainage conduits to simply get it out of the roads, get it out of the the way of 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 business, for lack of a better way of putting it. It, it, but it, it was done, and either was it was directed to uh, either a recharge basin or to to uh, nearby water bodies. Are there techniques now where the water is treated before it enters those those uh, facilities or those bodies of water? Yeah, let's let's start with like how did we used to handle this stuff, right? And you were correct, Nick. It was the idea was was just get it off the road or out of the parking lot as, as fast as you can, right? So it would just go into like the, the nearest drainage inlet and what type of treatment did we have there maybe we'd have a sump on that inlet where if you did have a lot of solids whether it was um, sands or silts or or pebbles or something like that that would sink out and settle in there you know sometimes it would capture some of the organic matter whether it was grass clippings or leaves that stuff would settle out in the bottom of the of the catch basin Uh, and then that basin would be piped to whatever you know terminus it's going to be a, a dry well a recharge basin or a surface water body so not a whole lot of treatment. You know, it would try to knock out that, that first flush of, uh, you know, sediments. And, and those things do need to be maintained, you know. Uh, you know, just walk around your neighborhood, you know, and you'll, oftentimes you'll see storm drains that look clogged. You know, why is that? Because exactly what I just said, all that stuff got in there and filled them up, you know. Um, so it, it's a maintenance issue uh, that has to be addressed. It's not something you can just, you know, do it once and, and never come back to it. Um, but the second part of the question is, is you know, as – you know, we've advanced and realized that these can be issues. What's being done about it now? Um, certainly a lot more. Um, as I mentioned, I live down by the bay in a township on the south shore of Long Island, and they do have some what we call best management practices in place, BMPs, all right? And these could be some sort of um, filter, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I've seen uh, they've got these filter medias that will absorb out stuff like some of the petroleum products that I mentioned, the oils, the greases, maybe some of the gasoline or the BTEX compounds. Um, they've also got solid separators, not just a trap or a sump in the bottom of a catch basin, 
but they'll be like these sort of a, a vortex type of thing where it's it's not make it's it's hydraulically operated you know once the, the water enters there and it picks up a certain flow it starts to spin around and it it'll start to you know almost like a centrifugal force type of thing it'll knock the solids out that way uh, they also have these the devices will also remove like the floatables that we talked about mm -hmm. you know stuff you get the cigarette butts this the plastic soda bottle or the, the Poland spring or whatever ended up falling out of, the, of someone's back of someone's truck and ended up in the road um, so you have stuff like that and then there's also what I talked about with the, the pet waste you know that's that's a big problem you know um, people don't pick up after their pets and stuff ends up getting out there um, you, you guys heard of like the fecal coliforms the coliforms the E. coli type stuff but the bacteria that's that's pretty harmful mm -hmm. uh, they do also have media that can remove the bacteria as well um, so again uh, it, but it's filtration and if we go back to what I said about the old stuff where you have to maintain it same thing with this new stuff um, it's it doesn't take care of itself you know it does require routine or in some cases even frequent maintenance okay okay and is there anything in the storm water that's actually falling in the rain is there did i remember i would remember in the past there were just you'd hear stories of of acid rain and what have you and and pollutants um from the midwest migrating to the east coast and dropping in the form of rain is that still something that's yeah relevant of, of course yeah um if, even if you just look at the ph of the ground average ph on of groundwater on long island is less than you know seven which is in the acidic range you know um it's somewhere it's usually between five and six in some areas it gets pretty low uh, you mentioned the acid rain though yeah how does that happen you know that's from like industrial pollutants that get up in the atmosphere you guys can picture those big tall smokestacks with a, a big billowing plume coming out of the top you know what are they putting into the atmosphere you know, and eventually that mixes with, say, the clouds, and it forms precipitation. It makes its way to the earth. You mentioned acid rain. That's, you know, sulfuric acid, essentially. You know, so you got, like, sulfides or sulfates getting up into the atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, just think of everything that, you know, your own home. You got an oil burner, you know, mm -hmm. you're burning fuel, you're driving a car, you got exhaust there. You know, where's all that stuff going? It's going into the atmosphere. Well, what's, as we talked previously in our previous podcast, where does the water that recharges the aquifers on Long Island come from? Right. The atmosphere, right? So, yeah, that can pick that up. Um, we've also, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but um, you, atmospheric deposition of nitrogen. Yep. So it's another component. Um, the air we breathe, 78% nitrogen. It's not oxygen. There's, there's oxygen in it, but to a much lesser extent than this inert, you know, N2 gas, the nitrogen. That'll be picked up in the precipitation, land on the earth, and it's, it's a much smaller component than, say, like um, fertilizer, which will have a lot of nitrogen in it. But that still adds to what's getting on the earth. You know, does it end up at percolating through the, through the surface, or does it end up in runoff? And does that runoff end up in a surface water body? Um, you know, nitrogen, we said, is a nutrient. You know, we talked about the, the brown, al um, you know, brown tides, red tides, the, the algal blooms. You know, all that stuff contributes it to, you know, either to a greater or lesser extent. So yeah, absolutely, you can have you know pollutants getting into the rain via the atmosphere. Okay, is that do those pollutants are they are they removed naturally during the percolation process as the rain hits the ground and migrates towards the groundwater? Uh, well, it's going to depend on a lot of things. All right, um, if say you have the acid rain, you know you've got a, a very low pH. You know how do you deal with that? If we you generally there's there's a few ways we can deal with it, but one is um, with, with the, uh, the sulfuric acid type stuff, you, acid neutralization. You know, here in Long Island, we don't have hard water. 
all right? So that hardness factor, calcium, would be something to neutralize it. So here in Long Island, as I said, our, we've got a low pH, you know, so you're not really seeing a lot of that. Um, the nitrogen deposition we just talked about as that enters, uh, nitrogen's pretty conservative, you know. It, it's really tough to break it down, um, but it can happen. But to a large extent, it'll, it'll, it's going to make it to the surface water or even to the groundwater. You know? So it's, it's, once that stuff's in the rainfall, it's very difficult to get it out. Um, and most of the systems that I mentioned before are not there to treat that type of pollute. You know, it was more for like solids removal, the oils and greases, uh, bacteria. Uh, I keep saying the floatables, but you know, that's the, just the, the trash and debris that gets left on the street or ends up in the street and ends up going into a storm drain inlet. Now, we're going to be discussing the, the, the nitrogen issue in depth in our upcoming podcast, but in regard to what you said before about there being nitrogen within the stormwater, rainwater, mm-hmm. to what degree does that contribute to Long Island's nitrogen issue? Um, it's going to de- contribute to, to a, a lesser extent than, as I said, some other bigger topics, which we'll touch on later, which would be wastewater, yeah. uh, fertilizers, you know. And, right. and other sources, it's it's a it's a smaller percent than the others, but it, it does yeah, contribute. Yeah, it's definitely less than five ten percent of what normally makes up our nitrogen issues here. You okay. know, big time, it's wastewater and fertilizers are the two biggest components. Understood, understood. Now um, there are emerging methods to treating uh, stormwater, uh, stormwater runoff, stormwater management, what have you, uh, known as green infrastructure and. Um, I know that we have been involved in multiple projects in developing and implementing such such uh, uh, means of, of treatment. These include bioswales or green roofs or porous pavements or what have you. Can you bl- briefly explain these applications and the environmental benefit and what they can and cannot do? Oh, absolutely. Nick, um, as, as you know from working at PW Grocer, we have been involved with uh, some green roofs. We've also been involved with the bioswales and rain gardens. You know, these are all, you know, sort of organic or natural type of, of means to handle stormwater and even treat some of the pollutants. We could start with, um, take a, a rain garden, you know. New York City, I love what they're doing in New York City, you know. I don't know if everyone loves what they're doing, but in this application, they're actually building these little rain gardens in between, say, the sidewalk and the road where you have, like, that little strip, mm-hmm. you know. And so what they do is they'll cut, like, an, an inlet and an outlet, and in that garden, they'll it's going to be an engineered type of situation with, uh, you know, sand and, and, and uh, engineered soil and an underdrain system, and even down to the plants that go into the, the rain garden. They'll be very specific to, you know, sort of native plants, but they'll also have an uptake of, of the water and some of the nutrients and everything else. So as the water flows down the street, it's channeled into the inlet of this rain garden. It then flushes through the garden, you know, and eventually it'll, it'll reach, it, some of it will reach the end and, and flow out. But in, while it's in there, you know, you've got a little bit of retention time. You've got some, uh, as we talked about, percolation through the soil. So you're, you're also draining, so you're removing some of the water, which puts less of a burden on what we talked about, those combined sewers in New York City. Um, and the, the plants are uptaking some of the, the nutrients, some of the soils absorbing some of it out, um, whether it's some of the pollutants. So you are getting some removal. You're getting some storage, and you're also get, taking some of the burden off the sewer. And that's with the rain garden. And, again, nothing is maintenance-free. As stuff ends up flowing into these things, you know, you may get some silts. You may get some, as we talked about, some of the garbage and whatnot that gets in there and can tend to slow things down and, and, and really uh, affect the performance of these things. So they, they do need to be maintained. Uh, the plantings, you know, sometimes they get, tend to overgrow. 
Um, but you got to be careful with what you put in there. Um, and, you know, like I said, in New York City, th- th- not only do they, they, they you know, have this, this functional aspect, but they have a nice aesthetic. You know, it adds to the greening of the city. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I wholly support that, what they're doing. I, I love it. It's, and it's, you know, it's not overly complicated. You know, as I said, there is some engineering involved in terms of the selection of the soils and the materials and how deep to make things and, and whatnot uh, and how to size them. You know, you got to look at your, your, your sort of your watershed area, what's going past. Your, these things can probably treat, you know, a good size one a couple thousand gallons for a single storm event. But how much water is flowing down a street in, say, Brooklyn? You know, there could be quite a bit during a heavy storm. So you're not going to get every drop, but it's going to help. And if you put a couple of them in series down the block, you know, you really can have an impact. Um, Another thing you mentioned was the green roofs. Uh, That's, you know, that's a really interesting concept. Uh, We've been involved with one project that was at the Queens Botanical Garden, obviously in Queens. Um, No surprise there. Um, But uh, my favorite green roof in the whole city is the Jacob Javits Center. Uh, you guys have all seen how large a facility that place is, right? right? It's, it's, it's enormous. It's like an entire city block and then some, you know. If you've been inside, you just you get lost for days in there. So it's, it's got a pretty big roof. So if anyone has, has, you know, is interested and you go and you Google Earth this thing, you're going to go in, you're going to see the roof of this thing is, eh, it's probably 60 to 70% green, right. all right? So what did they do up there, you know, and what they're doing in some other buildings in the city and out here in Long Island, some instances, um, they're engineering these roofs to have, you know, grasses and plants and um, you know habitat area for birds that they've even got beehives up on the, on the Javits Center um, and again this is not something you just go up and plant a lawn on a roof it, this was specific it was engineered um, there's a lot of things to consider when you do a green roof you know you, got, you can't just like I said go up to your gable roof with your asphalt shingles here on Long Island and decide yeah I'm going to turn it into a sod it doesn't work that way um, number one, there's structural concerns. You know, you're going to be putting a load up there. It's going to be an engineered soil again. And in that engineered soil, um, you're going to have, you know, root barriers, water membranes, um, drainage mats. Um, there's even water retention layers, you know. And what happens if you get a drought? You're still going to need irrigation up there to keep things alive, you know. Um, it's, so it's, it's just fascinating. And, and it also comes down to the types of plants you can put up there. Um, you know, you're not going to see palm trees in New York City. That's not the type of climate. Um, probably not going to see oak trees or big, you know, conifers or anything like that. Um, but what they've put up there, and it's, you know, it looks like these um, planted fields. You know, it's it's like kind of grassy, kind of, uh, you know, little shrubby type things. Very interesting. Um, I've seen a presentation. I haven't been up to the roof yet. I'm dying to get up there one day for a tour. They do offer tours. Uh, but they actually had, like, seagulls nesting up there. You know, you, they showed the little baby chicks hopping around on the roof. Um, another problem that sort of comes with that is uh, bird strikes. You know, it's, you guys, it's a huge building, <laughs> a lot of glass. So they've also had to engineer the glass to help reduce the number of bird strikes, you know. So, it's, but, so there are other issues that come with these, with these green roofs. Um, and, again, you know, there's just a, a lot that goes into the engineering, especially when you get up on a roof, um, you know, because you don't want unintended consequences like all of a sudden I got a leak or now something's rusting or I've added too much soil in one spot. Something's bowing, bending, settling, you know. Uh, it all has to be looked at before you just take that on. But what's the benefit of doing something like that? And now you're, you're using some of the stormwater runoff. Again, it's not going into the combined sewer down into the street, Um you know, there's generally not a lot of pollutants up on your roof, all right, but you still may get some of that atmospheric deposition type stuff. You're, you're handling some of that, um, you know, but, and it can be an aesthetic thing too. It can look nice, 
you know but like i said they've, they've built that roof big enough where you can certainly go walking on it like it's a park i know that there's there's uh, at the municipal level there's evolving uh rules and regulations um that are that are being applied to the management of stormwater i know that uh, pwgc is working on a project out in montauk on behalf of the town of east hampton brian can you uh discuss some of the things that we're doing out there to show that the, the or to illustrate the the work that we're doing in terms of stormwater management sure um so out in east hampton you know similar to what paul was saying is you know a lot of this is i'll say uh, retention or trying to ease the burden of stormwater on the existing infrastructure. In this particular case, it's a, a street end um, that kind of dead ends down at South Lake Drive. Uh, the water basically right now runs, you know, off the asphalt road in the parking lot and right into the waterway. Um, and that would be Lake Montauk, correct? It, or Montauk Lake House? Yeah, Lake Montauk, yeah. Gotcha. And basically there's no real treatment. It runs kind of through a, a little bit of a natural area, but, you know, it has some invasive species and things of that nature in it. Um, but what we're looking to do is, you know, convert it to some porous pavement, um, you know, get some recharge in the, in the asphalt itself, um, and then also create, again, one of these kind of, you know, um, recharge areas, you know, planting beds, you know, um, a bioswale rain garden kind of thing to kind of help treat the runoff, you know, before it, ends, it enters the stormwater. Um, you know, as Paul said, you know, a lot of these um, – Rain gardens are pretty good at, you know, removing either contaminants or even kind of slowing up the water impact. Um, I believe there is just some even natural decomposition of, you know, bacteria and viruses. And, you know, you know that's a big deal because that leads to your beach closures here in Suffolk County. Right. You know, come the summer season, the county's closing almost every beach known to man in the county after a heavy rainfall right. event. And the primary reason for that is bacteria. It's not anything else. It's just that that bacteria load from whether it's your dog, you know, um, the deer, geese, whatever it is, ends up, you know, right in the waterway. Um, you know, that also leads to, you know, additional shellfish closures from the DEC for, you know, clams and things of that nature. You know, you, you get those, you know, periodic closures. Um, and that's really mainly more from virus and bacteria load. Um, but yeah, these projects can help do that than more traditional, you know, the old school methods of just, like Paul said, get it out of sight, out of mind. You know, it went ran off the end of the road and nobody really cared. Um, you kind of have to, you know, make those changes. And, and I think we're seeing that now over the last couple of years, you know, at least in the last five, ten years, you really see municipalities embracing it, private development embracing it. You know, we have some private homes out on the east end of Long Island that we're working with that are incorporating rain gardens, you know, stormwater retention systems, kind of like rain barrels. Um, to ease up the irrigation load and kind of show that you can develop this responsibly. Are these efforts, or have we seen in these efforts, uh, improvement in surface water quality or uh, at least a halt in the decline uh, based on these uh, new efforts to, to, to manage stormwater on the island? Yeah, I want to say I think you can. You know, we're starting to see it. You know, I think, you know, we've, we've said it, it took us – you know, 40, 50 years to get into the situation we're in right, right. now. Um, and we don't have the magic silver bullet that's going to fix this overnight. It's probably going to take us equally as long to get back out of it. Right. Um, you know, the county created a, a subwatershed management plan that kind of leads into the wastewater discussion, but that focuses on nitrogen loading in the county and all of the water waste. And I think that's got a 50-year-plus, you know, plan put together um, for reducing nitrogen load. And you know, um, again, it kind of has to broach a number of different topics, but, you know, we are starting to see some improvement with, you know, 
fertilizer reduction, you know, wastewater changes, you know, you are imp positively impacting the environment with making these changes and reducing the nitrogen. Right. Um, it's still going to take a long, you know, a while um, before we can definitively walk out and say, you know, hey, look, this bay used to be brown all the time and now it's not. Right. But that's, uh, the stormwater management is part of a, of a I believe, a multi-pronged approach that's necessary to, to deal with this nitrogen and uh, pollutant issue. Um, no one avenue, whether it's stormwater or wastewater or what have you, management is going to um, bring the solution that everybody is searching for. Yeah, you're right. No, it's definitely a multi-pronged effort. You're going to need to kind of tackle this on both all all avenues and all fronts to really you know you can't just focus on one and say okay we're going to solve the wastewater problem and that's going to fix everything right because um, in and the county's plan actually went down into each one of these individual water bodies something like almost right. 200 water bodies in the county well it's it's both counties correct because now it was yeah it was channeling correct. it's correct water well, we'll get into that into the next discussion but, but um but yeah i mean in and it's different in each area of the island in some areas it's wastewater dependent where that is the largest piece but then when you get out to the eastern end where it's more farm fields it's storm. you know stormwater or nitrogen and, and runoff uh, are your biggest concerns so then it's you know the what you need to implement are a little bit different in those areas another issue that's plaguing uh, many of long island's uh, freshwater bodies are is the uh, invasion of invasive aquatic plant life um, many of our lakes uh, and ponds uh, as you drive by past them especially in the warmer months of the year um, take on a, a, a new look and rather than being a water body they almost look like they need a shave and at PWGC we have dealt with uh, several of these water bodies in terms of finding solutions to to return them to their former glory uh, one in particular being uh, Canaan Lake in Patchogue Paul, can you chime in as to what the what contributes to this issue and, sure, I'd love how, to, Nick. and how we solve this issue? Yep. Uh, number one, you said invasive species. You know, what does that mean? You know, uh, these are non-native aquatic plants. We're not talking about, you know, wildlife at this point, but, right. um, you know, plants that get into these water bodies. You know, and the question is, well, how did they get there? You know, where did they come from? You know, there's a lot of different theories. Um, you know, you, you may have seen some things happen yourself. Um, it's like these the fan uh, milfoil and the fan wart, these, these plants that you can even have in your home fish tanks, you know. Right. People decide to get rid of some tropical fish or some fish, and they dump the whole tank, and out it goes, and it gets in there. Uh, that's one way. Uh, other ways it comes in on, it could come in on waterfowl. It's right. caught up in the, you know, feet of the, the birds and uh, or on the wings or whatever, and it, it ends up getting transported that way. Uh, other ways is it comes in on, say, somebody's fishing equipment. They fished in a, in a lake upstate. Now they're coming down to fish on Long Island. They've got a little piece. Ends up that way. Or on the bottom of a boat. Or in the village of a boat. Or however. You know, th there's many different ways it can come from <clears throat> outside our ecosystem and end up here. And when it gets in, it's invasive. And it's they flourish. Um, and part of the problem that contributes to their, you know, um, how robust these things end up being is, is you go back to the stormwater. We talked about the nutrients. Uh, a lot of these invasive species also do not like, you know, hard sand bottoms. 
Um, so what happens is over time is you get muck building up in the bottom of a, of a lake, whether it's from de- decaying organic matter, stuff coming off from uh, the roads with the silts and the storm leaves. Storm water runoff. Storm water runoff. Or you could have a lot of geese in there swimming around doing their business, and uh, you get the geese poop after decades filling up in there. And these invasive species love that mucky stuff. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, they can get so prolific, it looks like you can almost walk on water. It looks like a lawn almost as, as opposed to, you know, a pond or a lake that people used to go and fish and swim and, and kayak and boat on. Right. You know, it just becomes prohibitive. You can't do any of that stuff. You right. can't throw a lure out there anymore and expect to get it back. You know, you, you paddle a kayak, you're going to get tangled up. Swimming, right. forget it. Um, so these things are, are a huge problem um, from the, the functionality of the lake as well as to the aesthetics. And then it chokes out other things, you know, the, the fish that you wanted to go catch, you know. Um, um, but how do you deal with this stuff? You know, it's it's difficult, you know. Uh, prevention's almost, you know, as I said, if, if a bird's bringing something in, it's impossible. Right, right. Um, but upstate, I know there, there are lakes where they you have to go and power wash your boat before you put it in there. Right. You know, same thing with your fishing equipment. They're, they're very, very, you know, cognizant of, the, of these issues. Um, here in Long Island, I, I, don't, I don't believe there's anything quite that stringent yet. Um, but then, you know, how do you remediate this stuff once it gets in there? You know, um, there's numerous, numerous methods. None of them are, um, let's say, inexpensive. Right. Um, you know, from harvesting the stuff, you know, with uh, lake harvesters where they right. go out in there and they rip it up and cut it up. The problem with that is, is when you start to rip and cut, the stuff will end up breaking apart, going downstream, yeah. and creating a problem in your neighbor's lake, you right. know, downstream from you or going out to the bay or whatever. Um, there's benthic mats that you can drop on top of it to prevent sunlight from getting to it. You know, the stuff can't grow in very deep water. You know, like 6 to 10 feet might be the max for some of this stuff. Um, then there's what we did at Canaan Lake. You know, right. we drain the lake and scrape the muck. You know, right. as I said, it won't grow in that hard, sandy bottom. How do I keep the muck from coming back? Well, I can't keep the geese out. You know, right. well, we talked about some of the stormwater stuff that you can address. So this stuff, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a huge issue. You know, and we're seeing it all across the island and, uh, you know, in, in conjunction with those with the other issues we spoke about. Yeah, Paul, in a similar vein, you know, we also have a problem with um, it's not really. Well, I mean, I guess it could be an invasive species, but blue green algae, blue green algae and, and cyanobacteria, especially um, in some of the shallower you know, freshwater water bodies we have um, out on the east end or, you know, I think. A couple of the water bodies out there between Wainscott Pond and I think uh, Little Fresh Pond, I think, had had some of the highest recorded cyanobacteria levels right. uh, in the state over the last couple of years. Um, and again, that relates back to stormwater because those algaes grow when you know summers come, water temperatures warm up. Um, it almost looks like pea soup, kind of you know, out there. Right. Um, and that's the bacteria that you know it is dangerous. It is fatal to humans, dogs. You know, I think there was a news report a couple of years ago mm-hmm. of a dog drinking from a lake and you know ultimately passing from it. Um, but that's you know again related to stormwater. It's getting those bacteria are fed from the nutrients that are you know conveyed to those ponds via largely stormwater um, that again, as Paul said, kind of settle out and sit in the bottom of that pond. Um, for years and years and years, and you end up with this two-foot layer of muck at the bottom that, you know, in the summer months kind of rolls over um, and releases phosphorus and nitrogen, which kind of fuels the algae bloom. And it starts off as one set of algae, then converts to another, and next thing you know, you've got a lake that's green and is, you know, not only can you not go near it now, it could actually hurt you. Right. Um, And and that's something that I think we're starting to see um, some more action on, you know, again, making these improvements to try to prevent those. 
um, or coming up with ways to kind of fix it because it's you know it's it's a costly endeavor to come in and kind of rectify it. Right. Um, but it's something I think that definitely needs to be done. And are we seeing the same issues with saltwater bodies since we're so much surrounded by saltwater here on the uh, island? Are, are there the same types the, of issues? Well, if you look at the bays, you know, the eelgrass, you've, you've heard that right. expressed before. It's not what it used to be, you right. know, and it's there's a lot of benefits to the eelgrass in terms of, like, storm surge and, you know, waves and everything else and slowing that down to prevent erosion and, you know. Wise, claim, claim reproduction. Uh, uh, yeah. Scallops, yeah. The, the shellfish beds, all of that stuff. So, you know, once we start to lose that eelgrass, you know, you can see the real negative impacts, you know, just – Storm surge, you know, we all lived from one of the most horrible storms we've ever seen in our lives uh, back in 2012, you know, mm-hmm. Superstorm Sandy, um, you know, and that's when we really started to say, huh, there's, there's something going on here that we should have been addressing, and now we really need to step it up. Okay, that wraps up this podcast, but we obviously we couldn't cover all issues related to stormwater management and its impact on surface waters. But our engineers are constantly writing about this topic, and PWGC is working on uh, projects related to this subject on a regular basis. Please be sure to visit us on our website at pwgrocer.com, that's P-W-G-R-O-S-S-E-R.com, or on our social media. Thank you.